1: Our world is full of the unexplainable, and if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Dinosaurs lived over 250 million years ago in what's known as the Mesozoic Era, The first human beings, or as close as we know as human beings, first appeared between five and seven million years ago. History has taught us that dinosaurs and humans did not coexist. It was a chronological impossibility. And yet, there's a belief that species from both sides may have crossed paths at some point in history. Valdemar Jalsrud certainly believed that. He was a hardware store owner from Germany. In the summer of 1944, while on horseback near the Mexican city of Acambaro, he noticed something sticking out of the ground in a dried-up riverbed. Actually, he noticed many things. Small figurines made of clay that looked like animals of some kind. Several of them had rows of sharp teeth, and some were depicted in battle with humanoid figures, while others had the human figures riding atop their backs. He hired a local farmer to help him dig around the area. Maybe there were more of these clay creations to be found. Soon, it was clear that the two men had gotten much more than they'd bargained for. They pulled over 30,000 clay figurines out of the dirt. The human-shaped ones were of particular interest because they seemed to represent cultures from all over the world, including ancient Egyptians and Sumerians, people not known to have ever set foot in Mexico. Thinking that he had stumbled upon an archaeological gold mine... Jules Rudd collected all of the figurines he had found and stored them in his home. Word spread of the strange pieces, and eventually people came to find out for themselves whether they were truly an ancient plaything or just discarded modern art projects. Charles de Pesso, an archaeologist working for a cultural preservation organization in Arizona, immediately dismissed the Akambaro figurines as fake. They showed nowhere, no dirt in their crevices. They couldn't have been more than a few years old, he said. Most likely, they were made by the local farmers as part of an elaborate hoax. Others weren't so skeptical, though. In 1951, Los Angeles Times reporter Lowell Harmer traveled to Jules home in Mexico to see them for himself, and he was convinced of their authenticity. His article about the figurines led to more stories from other papers, all of which fueled further exploration of the area. Mexico sent four archaeologists to the site to see if there were other figurines that hadn't yet been found. There definitely were, but there was more as well. The bones of two dinosaurs were also discovered a little deeper underground. After the government shut down the site from further digging, rumors about what had been found there only grew larger. Another archaeologist, Charles Hapgood, wasn't convinced with de Pesso's claim that farmers had made the roughly 32,000 figurines on their own. For one, they had no reference for what a dinosaur was supposed to look like. The farmers were poor and uneducated. To think that they'd sit around sculpting lizards out of clay rather than tending to their farms didn't make any sense. Hapgood's colleague, Earl Gardner, apparently agreed. He sent a few of the figurines to a lab for radiocarbon dating, which placed their age at roughly 3,500 to 6,500 years old. Further tests would yield a more accurate time period of around 2,500 B.C., other tests have been conducted over the years. Two scientists attempted to run thermoluminescent dating on a few dozen figurines, but the results were inconclusive. And the fact that no one has been able to accurately chart their origins hasn't helped skeptics or believers prove the validity of the figurines. Over the years, debate has raged as to whether the Akambaro figurines are remnants of a time when man and dinosaur, or something like them, coexisted. Or perhaps they were someone's idea of a historical prank. We may never know the truth about where the figurines came from, but it sure is a curious vision of the past, isn't it? However improbable it might be, it's fun to imagine a time when humans might have done something typically only seen in Hollywood blockbusters, riding atop ferocious dinosaurs like a common horse. And if they did, it would be easy to see the Akambaro figurines as something very familiar to our modern minds. Action Figures
2: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
1: But out of it came countless innovations we still use today. Penicillin, although discovered years earlier, was first put to use on the battlefield to stave off infection in wounded soldiers. British radio experts Robert Watson Watts and Arnold Wilkins helped introduce the world to radar by reflecting radio waves off a bomber as a way of detecting enemy aircraft. In fact, the British were behind quite a few wartime technologies, all developed to give the Allies an edge in the field. However, as one side was evolving, so was the other. German U boats had come into their own during World War I, but the Treaty of Versailles, signed in 1919, forbade Germany from building new subs again. Of course, the Germans weren't going to let something as small as a global declaration of peace stop them. Under the guise of research, they continued developing U boats until their undersea fleet was the largest in the Second World War. The subs could travel long distances in frigid temperatures far from shore and beyond the reach of most land-based planes. That made finding and stopping them almost impossible, until an English inventor came up with an idea for a new kind of vessel. He sent his proposal for a modified aircraft carrier to Lewis Mountbatten, a British Royal Naval officer. It would be a stealth craft designed to withstand the freezing temperatures of the mid-Atlantic, able to transport fighter planes to areas where U-boats were known to occupy. They called it Project Habakkuk, and the first step was to construct a scale model of this carrier at Canada's Jasper National Park. The inventor, Jeffrey Pike, wanted to make sure it would be able to withstand artillery fire from the Germans, so he got to work on a 60 foot long prototype fitted with a one horsepower engine. He hired a team of people to construct it at Patricia Lake in Alberta, not telling them exactly what it was they were building. Unfortunately, they had gotten a late start. It was already April, and the weather was heating up. Soon, there would be no way to verify the ship's resilience against the harshness of the icy mid-Atlantic. But rather than give up and wait until the next year, the British looked to the Americans to assist in their efforts. Due to a previous issue while working with the United States on a separate initiative, Jeffrey Pike was cut out of Project Habakkuk. Absent their fearless leader, engineers from both countries worked round-the-clock for months as ambitions around the aircraft carrier grew. It had to be bigger, they said. It had to travel for longer distances, too. Its hull had to be over 40 feet thick to withstand towering ocean waves and enemy torpedoes. And it would carry more than fighter planes. Bombers were added to the list, which meant its runway needed to be over 2,000 feet long. And it also had to turn on a dime, so a 100-foot-high rudder needed to be included. Unfortunately, no one had ever installed or controlled one that large before. They built three different models based on Pike's original design, but none of them managed to incorporate every requirement into a single one. Initial tests were successful, though the vessel moved much slower than the British had hoped. When it was all said and done, Winston Churchill and Mountbatten gave the engineers the green light to build and launch a full-size version as soon as possible. And they would have, if they'd had enough time. The researchers had been so scared of Churchill that they didn't have the heart to tell him that one ship would cost over 70 million dollars and take almost a year to build. Oh, and it probably would have melted in the end. You see, given the steel shortages due to the war effort, Pike and his scientists had to come up with another method for building an aircraft carrier capable of floating undetected into the far reaches of the Atlantic Ocean. The clear choice, quite literally, was ice. Had Project Habakkuk been completed, it would have been a 600-foot-long ship, weighing 2 million tons, and made entirely of ice. 280,000 blocks of it, to be exact. Well, an ice-based compound, at least. The first prototype built was originally made of solid ice, but it was too weak to withstand rough weather or gunfire. That's when Pike came up with a new kind of material he called pycrete. It was a mixture of ice and wood pulp that was stronger, more buoyant, and took longer to melt than regular ice. During one demonstration at a top-secret conference in 1943, Lord Mountbatten set up a block of pycrete beside a block of ice. His audience? Winston Churchill, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and several other high-ranking military officials. He then unholstered his service pistol and fired a shot at the pure ice block, breaking it into a million small pieces. Then he fired a shot at the pycrete, which deflected the bullet, sending it whizzing past U.S. Admiral Ernest King's leg. He wasn't hurt, but his pants got a quick lesson in the strength of Pike's new building material. Sadly, Project Habakkuk never made it past the prototype phase. Aside from the massive construction costs, newer technologies had arrived which allowed British planes to fly farther distances for longer, canceling the need for a frozen, floating runway. Montbatten eventually exited the project, leaving it um, dead in the water. And there you go. A cool idea to help win the war that never really took off in the end. Curious, isn't it? I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey.